Well, good morning, and welcome to Help Community Church. I'm Pastor Trevor. Um, grateful for all of you who are here, and for those of you joining us online, uh, welcome as well. Um, quick announcements. Uh, we have, uh, so the discipleship team is looking to upgrade um, our library in regards to books that will equip you and help you to engage uh, with the issues of today um, while being grounded in scripture. So in part, in that effort, we need to raise funds uh, for that. So uh, for June Dairy Days, we are going to be one of three churches that will be staffing the uh, food tents, the little food area. So depending on how many people serve in the food area, depending on how many funds they raise, they divvy up the uh, the profits from that uh, to the various churches. And so we'll use those funds to help purchase um, new books. So if you're interested in signing up, you can scan uh, that QR code uh, right now, um, and it will take you to the link. I'll send out a link later today as well where you can sign up for a, a time slot, a position, um, a day if you're interested um, in serving the church in that way. If you have a uh, book that you would like to see in our library, uh, you can um, write out a suggestion. This is a suggestion box in the library. You can put it in there um, and we can review that um, and consider uh, purchasing that for the library. In regard to books, I do have a book recommendation, especially for those of you with kids. Uh, this is the biggest story Bible storybook. Um, it is, if there is a children's Bible uh, that I would recommend. This is it, essentially. This is really the only one. Um, and it's not the Bible. Uh, Kevin DeYoung is the author, um, and it's a great book. It's got beautiful, one, beautiful illustrations, but the key thing in here is that what he writes is uh, essentially like it's biblical theology. He gets all the main points of all the chapters uh, from Genesis to Revelation, and that way, so a child who, who an, or an adult who doesn't understand Scripture, they can read this um, and get the message. They get the point. They'll see the holiness of God. They'll see that they are a sinner. They'll see the need for Christ from Genesis through uh, Revelation. So it's, it's, a, it's a great uh, book for that. Again, it's the biggest story Bible story book by Kevin uh, D. Young. It uh, just came out. Excellent book for children, and I would even say for adults who struggle to understand uh, the main message of, of Scripture. If you're looking for an easy read that is going to sum up for you the whole point, the whole purpose of Scripture, and break it down into uh, chunks for you, show you all the pieces, it is an excellent uh, book uh, to do that. So again, I, I recommend that to you. Before we begin our message, um, let's go to our Father in Heaven in prayer. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. We come before you um, as sinners, again, seeking forgiveness, knowing forgiveness is there on the basis of your Son. And so, Father, we come to you boldly, confidently, seeking wisdom this morning, uh, seeking your truth, your word, asking that we would be edified and sanctified and equipped for your glory. So help us to be focused, help us to be attentive, help us to have our ears attuned to you, Help us not to be uh, distracted by the cares, the worries, the burdens, the anxieties of this world, the pains, nor the delights, the joys, or the comforts, Father. Help us to hear your word. Help us to do so. Help us to be disciplined so that we would glorify you in all that we do. We ask this, Father, for your glory, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So how do we find God's grace in an unbelieving world? Where is the peace of God to be known, to be experienced. If you haven't already, go ahead and turn to 2 Kings 21. 
our passage today is going to be 2 Kings 21 through 23, verse 30. Our text is going to remind us where we can find God's grace and peace by reminding us to whom God looks to do so. We have three kings of Judah in our passage. The first two, Manasseh and Amon, they set the stage by causing the kingdom to be as evil as it has ever been in the history of Judah. The third king is the last good king that Judah will have, King Josiah. And Josiah will show us how a life of faith rooted in humility before God is a life that is rooted in obedience to the word of God. And that it is by the word of God that a person finds peace. Let's start by considering the reigns of Manasseh and Amon, found in 2 Kings chapter 21, with Manasseh's reign covering the first 18 verses and Amon's reign covering verses 19 through 26. Again, please have your Bibles open. Uh, We won't read uh, all of our text today. We'll read certain portions. So by having your Bibles open, you'll be able to follow along and just make sure uh, that I am an honest man before you. So in chapter 21, we see that this generation of Manasseh and Amon is a wicked and evil generation. We're introduced with Manasseh. He's an evil king, and he's the son of good king Hezekiah. So this is an example that regardless of how righteous you may be, how faithful you may be in the word of God and to the faith, your children can be the opposite. There's only so much you can do, and you need to rest in that. Do what you can, but rest in the fact that there's only so much you can do. So Manasseh, he begins his reign at the age of 12, and he has the longest reign of all the kings that we see, that we have seen so far and will ever see in scripture outside of the King Jesus, of course. But Manasseh, his reign is 55 years. And most likely when it started, he was a co-regent alongside alongside Hezekiah. See, when you look at the length of reigns of all these kings and you were to keep them completely separated with with nobody co-reigning, we would have, the dating doesn't work out. So part of his kingdom, he is reigning as a co-regent, a a co-king, so to speak, alongside Hezekiah. Probably later in Hezekiah's life, depending on his physical ailments, uh, Manasseh would step in and fulfill the role. Now let's consider the sins of Manasseh as they are recorded. Right out of the gate in verse 2, his sins are equated to the nations, the sins of the nations that God drove out before Israel. As Israel crossed over the Jordan, as Israel was taking over the promised land, the nations, their sins that God had punished those nations with, those are the sins that Manasseh has led Judah into doing. In verse 3, he rebuilt the high places that his father took so, so much effort, so much um, energy to destroy, he has rebuilt those high places. And he has reintroduced Baal worship. That evil Baal worship, which Elijah and Elisha struggled so hard to rid the land of, he has reintroduced it. He worships the astral deities as well by worshiping the stars. And this is forbidden. In Deuteronomy 4.19, and in the context, God is commanding Israel, warning them, hey, be careful you don't engage in idolatry, and be careful you don't engage in this idolatry. He says, beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that Yahweh your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. In verses 4 through 5, we read of how Manasseh has profaned 
the Lord's temple. He has set up altars and places for offerings, not to Yahweh, but to other gods, to a place where God, Yahweh himself, his name alone is meant to be worshipped. Manasseh has opened it to other gods, to other faiths. Verse 6, he offered his firstborn as a burnt offering. And note in verses 4, 7, and 8, we're given reminders of God's word on these matters. Specifically, God reminds that, hey, in Jerusalem, in this place, in this temple, my name, my name alone is to be worshipped. In all these sins, Manasseh is doing the exact opposite. We're also reminded that if the people obey this word of God, that God would preserve them, that God would keep them. He would keep them in their land. But verse 9 tells us they did not listen to God's word. Manasseh led them astray. And he not just led them into softer or like, like just a little off the path. He led them way off the path. He led them into more evil than even the Amorites and the other Canaanite nations did whom God had destroyed. Manasseh was so wicked, he took the kingdom of Judah back to the days before David, before Saul, even before the days of Joshua when Joshua took over the promised land. And those days preceded the days of Judges, when everyone did what was right in accordance to their own eyes. And in case there was any doubt to the wickedness of Manasseh, Yahweh makes it clear by denouncing Manasseh and Judah in verses 10 through 15. I'll go ahead and read that. Yahweh said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did, who were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line over the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies. Because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. And it doesn't stop there. You think it were, would, but it doesn't. The author continues in verse 16. The author reminds us, tells us, that the amount of innocent blood that Manasseh shed could fill Jerusalem from one end to the other. And then we read about Manasseh's death and his 55-year reign of evil is ended. And you would hope, you would think that maybe Judah would get a, a rest here, but they do not. For Manasseh's son, Amon, follows in his father's footsteps, and he takes his throne at the age of 22. And unfortunately, he is just as evil, just as wicked, but fortunately, it is a short reign. He only reigns for two years, but note verse 22. Amon abandoned Yahweh, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of Yahweh. This is the mark of wickedness, the mark of of evil. The ones who are the kings who are considered evil are the ones that have abandoned Yahweh. They did not walk, they did not live as Yahweh commanded them. Essentially they were disobedient. And so Amen, 
He is this king. He is this evil king. And his servants, they assassinate him. They cut him down, just like many other evil kings before him. But the people of Judah, they either zealous for Yahweh or zealous for the nation or both, they, as they put Josiah on, on the throne, they cut down the assassins. And take note of that. Every time we have an evil king, no matter how wicked or evil the king is, and they're assassinated, the assassins are held to justice for it. They are never approved of. They are never commended for their actions, regardless of how evil the king was that was assassinated. Those who are assassinated are guilty of murder. So Josiah, at the age of eight, which is close to the age of Joash. So Josiah is one of two boy kings. Joash is the other boy king, which we've already covered. Remember, Joash took the throne at the age of seven, uh, back, way back in uh, chapter 11. Uh, so that was about 200 years ago when Joash reigned. And so we have covered, if you, if you haven't realized this, the, the time uh, that we have covered in these past like 11, 10 chapters or so has been 200 years. Uh, 2 Kings 1 to 2 Kings 10 covered about 20 years, but 2 Kings 11 to 2 Kings 22 has covered about 200 years. Joash, he reigned, he reigned in 835 B.C., and Josiah comes to the throne roughly 640 uh, B.C. So we have picked up uh, the pace quite, quite a bit. So here, Josiah, the second boy king, he begins his reign at the age of eight. And he does so following 57 years of pure wickedness uh, after the reign of Manasseh and Amon. He is a king who no doubt had various advisors and influences of various beliefs and political ideologies. Some advisors who are probably pro-Egyptian, pro-Assyrian, pro-Babylonian in regards to who should, who should Judah um, become friends with, who should they side with. Yet he does not reign as Amon does. He does not reign as Manasseh does. He, he actually goes counterculture and he reigns as David, his father, did. His ancestor did. He reigns for 31 years and he is and he will be the last good king of Judah before their exile. During his reign, in verses 3 through 7, we read that he repairs the temple. The other boy king, Joash, did the same thing. Both boy kings engage in temple repair. In the midst of these repairs, the priest Hilkiah finds the book of the law, and this is a key moment in the, in the life of Josiah and in, in his reign. In verse 10, the book of the law gets read to the king, and the king, as verse 11 tells us, he responds by tearing his clothes, by lamenting, by trembling at the word of God of which he heard. Then in verse 13, in response to that, he seeks guidance from Yahweh. And he sends people to the prophetess Hulda. Hulda then gives them this word. Let's read this word in verse 15 through 20. She said to them, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of Yahweh, thus shall you say to him, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, 
because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before Yahweh when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares Yahweh. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. Following this message from Yahweh by the prophetess Huldah, Josiah brings a, begins a thorough reformation of the land, which chapter 23 records for us. Verses 1 through 14, Josiah is recorded as reversing and undoing all the idolatrous practices that Manasseh had set up and encouraged. Thus, Josiah returned the land of Judah and his people to a place of singular devotion once again to Yahweh. I want us to read verses 15 through 20 of chapter 23, and I want to do this because it records for us a fulfillment of an old prophecy a prophecy that we read about in 1 Kings 13, which, chronologically speaking, that happened back in 930 B.C., so nearly 300 years earlier prior to uh, this incident with Josiah. For us, though, it was only six months ago. So let's read verses 15 through 20 of chapter 23. Moreover, the altar of Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Remember, he was, Jeroboam was the first king of the northern kingdom. After the kingdom split, Rehoboam got Judah, Jeroboam got uh, Israel. So this is immediately following uh, the reign of Solomon. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place he, bur- he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of Yahweh that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. Then he said, What is that monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, It is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar of Bethel. And he said, Let him be, let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. You remember the two prophets and how the prophet of Samaria deceived the prophet of Judah. They're buried together. Josiah removed all the shrines also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which kings of Israel had made, provoking Yahweh to anger. He did to them according to all that he had done at Bethel, and he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Following this, verses 21 through 27, then record for us further reformation while highlighting Josiah's restoration of the Passover practice um, being practiced in all of Judah. In verse 25, let's not miss this, uh, verse 25 highlights the faithfulness of Josiah and does so in a similar way as Hezekiah was, um, focused, was highlighted as well, as Hezekiah's greatness was highlighted. You have verse 25 in front of you. I'm going to read 2 Kings 18.5, which is similar. Speaking of Hezekiah. Hezekiah trusted in Yahweh, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, after him, nor among those who were before him. So very similar to the words used here of Josiah. So what's the difference? Because clearly it can't be true about both of them, right? Well, note the distinction. 
Hezekiah's greatness was related to how he trusted in Yahweh in the most desperate times in the face of, of the Assyrians. Remember that uh, Hezekiah's reign was uh, marked by the Assyrian siege, by uh, Sennacherib sieging Jerusalem. So Hezekiah's faithfulness, that is what is being highlighted there in chapter 18, was that he trusted Yahweh in the midst of all what was going on. He didn't rely on pragmatism. He didn't rely on worldly wisdom. He trusted in the hand of Yahweh. Josiah's greatness, however, is related to his faith in Yahweh as he obeyed the word of God, as it was recorded in the law of Moses. Though, despite Josiah's faith and greatness, as verse 27 tells us, God's judgment against Judah would remain an exile yet awaited his people. Then verses 28 through 30 record for us the death of Josiah, a death that he suffered. Uh, it's been com- commented as rather foolishly because he sought to engage battle against the Egyptians, a greater, stronger army, and we're not quite sure why he did so. Perhaps he was, he was seeking to help out his Babylonian friends. If he was pro-Babylonian, we're not sure. One, one reason or the other, he engaged in battle um, with the Egyptians, and he died in battle. Thus, the days of the good kings of God's people come to an end. Only judgment and only evil remains for the people of God in the land of Judah, at least in the near term. So, how was Josiah, in the midst of an unbelieving, idolatrous, wicked nation, able to rule and reign in a way that allowed him to experience the favor of God and to go to his grave in peace, as verse 20 of chapter 22 tells us? How was this possible? Call to mind what led Manasseh and Judah to evil, as God stated. Right? They forsook Yahweh. They forsook his word and his ways. Manasseh, Amen, they lacked faith, they lacked humility, they lacked obedience. Josiah had all three of these. Faith, humility, obedience to the word of God. The faith of Josiah is first exhibited in chapter 22 when we read of him caring for Yahweh's temple. 2 Chronicles 34.3 gives us more insight and tells us that Josiah began at the age of 16 uh, following after Yahweh. And then four years uh, later began devoting worship in the land to Yahweh alone. This faith that Josiah exhibited led him to find the word of God. Or specifically, Hilkiah found the word, but it was brought to Josiah. And in faith, upon hearing the word of God, Josiah trembled in response at what he had heard. And thus he humbled himself as he sought repentance for himself and his people, and he threw himself at the mercy of Yahweh. Because of that, Yahweh blessed Josiah. Here again, the words of 2 Kings 22, verses 19-20. Because, right, Yahweh speaking now to Josiah, because Josiah, because your heart was penitent, because it was broken, because it was contrite, and you humbled yourself before Yahweh when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares Yahweh. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. So Josiah 
having trembled before the word of God, having received God's blessing, having received the mercy of God in his life, he continues a life of faith and humility. He renews the old covenant with Yahweh in front of all of his people. And then he restores the Passover throughout the land. And he continues to promote Yahweh worship as he removes any and all means of idol worship that was going on within Jerusalem and without. He even goes to Bethel, which is outside the land of Judah. Though Josiah has been told disaster is coming, Josiah still obeys the word of God. Though the outcome has been determined, Josiah still seeks to go through all the trouble to be obedient. This is the obedience that God desires. An obedience that is done out of a desire for him. An obedience that leads us to him. Some of you are obedient to God's word because you want an easy life. Or you want to keep that job. Or you think by being obedient you can avoid cancer or certain suffering in your life. Or you think, if I'm obedient, then God will do what I want him to do. I can bend, I can manipulate his will to mine, and I will get what I ask for. Some of you are obedient because you think it helps cover up some of your sins. As long as the sin's not too great, you can still do them as long as you still do these righteous deeds. We need to understand that scripture is clear, faithful the faithful are not obedient for any of those reasons. They are obedient primarily for one reason. See, it is in obedience that one knows the Lord. You cannot know him apart from obedience, not the way that you are called to know him. In all instances, when a king has been described as one whose whole heart has pursued God, it was always associated with obedience. In other words, how they walked, how they lived. It was never about how they felt, about their emotions. It was never about their intentions. It's always about how they actually lived, how they walked in accordance to the word of God. And even in the instances of sin, right? Think of King David, right? None of the good kings were without their sins. But the faithful kings, they knew how to handle their sin. They knew that when they did sin, they then knew how to walk in confession and repentance, and they knew to where they ought to walk, to Yahweh, to God. Now, let's be clear, so we're not confused on this. Though it is by obedience we know the Lord, it is not by obedience that we come to the Lord. Consider the Exodus. God went to his people, he sent Moses to his people. He delivered his people from bondage, brought them through the Red Sea, and then he gave them his word. Then he told them, this is how you need to live. This is how you ought to live. This is how you are to walk. It's the same today. God the Father sent the Son to his people. He delivered us from our bondage to sin by shedding the sin, the blood of Christ, uh, of Christ on the cross, and for those who look to him today for their salvation, he then calls them to die to self and to follow him. Obedience is not necessary to go to the cross. But if you want to go to the cross, 
reap the benefits, and when you reap the benefits of the cross, the cross will then lead you as you follow Christ into obedience. In other words, humble yourself and walk in the ways of the son of David. That's what Jesus means when he says, follow me. Every good king is compared to David. Why? Because they walked as David did. We today are called to walk as the son of David, as king, Jesus Christ. And this is what Josiah did. In faith, he humbled himself and walked in the ways of David. He was a man after God's own heart. And the path of humility, which marked the life of Josiah, was a path that was marked by the word, the word of God. Those who are faithful, those who are faithfully humbled before God have a life that is marked in obedience to the word. Here again, verse 25 of 2 Kings. Before Josiah, there is no king like him who turned to Yahweh with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might. That's Deuteronomy 6, right? That he is, he is a living example of where the people of God were called to live. According to all the law of Moses, in other words, according to the word of God. Nor did any like him arise after him. Faithful humility is not known apart from obedience to God's word. For anyone who walks, who lives, and willfully and knowingly walks in a manner that's contrary to the word of God is not walking in humility. That is a, a walk of a prideful man, a faithless man. It is a walk of a selfish and cowardly person. See, the humble are willing to die for the sake of their God. The prideful, the arrogant, the boastful are not. Consider the humility of Christ. This is uh, Paul's argument in Philippians 2. Son of God, taking on flesh, right? Humbled himself. Took on flesh, was obedient. He's obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the obedience that we are called to do. If you are arrogant, if you are prideful, if you're worried about your own life, you won't, you won't have that humility in your life. The faithful who are humble will endure great suffering for the sake of being obedient to God's word. But maybe you're thinking, well, if it is by the work of Christ that I am saved, and not obedience, right? If I'm justified by Christ alone, not by obedience, why suffer? Why endure hardship for the sake of being obedient? Perhaps Josiah at one point had this same question. If the fate of the kingdom, if Judah has already been sealed, if they're already going in exile, God's already going to bring disaster upon the land, and I'm already going to go to the grave in peace, why go through all the trouble to reform the land to Yahweh worship? Why even bother? Why not maintain as many friends as I can have? Why not have a good time? Why not be merry? For tomorrow, God's judgment's coming anyway. So if your salvation is secured by the blood of Christ, why suffer? Why endure hardship for the sake of being obedient? Because that is where Christ is. That is where glory is and eternity lie. 2 Corinthians 4, 16, 18, Paul writes, and he's talking, he, he's, he writes this as he's, making the, as he's explaining to the Corinthians why the apostles are willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church. He says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Though we suffer, 
Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In other words, the suffering that they are enduring because of their obedience is worth suffering because it leads to renewal and it leads to the eternal weight of glory. That's what they are being prepared for. He goes on to say, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is a renewing that happens by obedience. Romans 12, 1, 2, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, as a walking sacrifice. That as you live, you die to self regularly, and you walk in obedience. You walk as the good kings of Judah walked. You walked as Josiah walked. You walk as David walked, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't engage in idolatry. Don't engage in Baal worship. Don't worship at the high places. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And we do this not in our power, praise God, but in his. Philippians 2, 12, 13, Paul, after talking about how Christ had humbled himself, says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, See, there are nowhere in Scripture is there an idea that you can be a believer in Christ and not be obedient. Just one does not exist. So now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And don't forget verse 13. Don't ever forget verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, God is the power. He will see it through. You can't do this on your own, so you, you rest, you trust that God will help you in this endeavor because he is working in you to help you walk in obedience. And we do this not simply for the joys that await us in eternity, as Paul tells us, but we do this for the abundant life that Jesus says that we can have. We do it for the joys that we can have now. John 14, 21 Jesus says, whoever has my commandments keeps them by keeping. Again, he's not saying whoever memorizes them, right? It's not what he means at all. It means whoever obeys them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself or reveal myself to him. Again, two verses later, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep, he will obey my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him. And we will make, we will abide, we will dwell with him. We will make our home with him. See, the one who Jesus loves, that is, excuse me, the one who loves Jesus, that is, looks to him as Lord and Savior, that person obeys Jesus. You cannot claim that you love Christ and neglect his word. You cannot say that you love Christ and not obey. You cannot say that you love Christ and not follow him, meaning walk as he walked and go where he walked. And the one who does this, the one who does love him, keeps his word, obeys his word, Jesus and his Father, God, will reveal themselves to you as they abide in you, as the word of God abides in you. And if God is abiding in you, then peace you shall have, even in this world. 
John 16, 33, Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that in me, again, how are we in Christ? How is Christ in us? By us obeying his word, by keeping his word. So in Christ, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So you have this peace because you know God as you were meant to know him. Personally, relationally. Right? He's not some distant, cold God. He is a personal God who desires a relationship with every one of us. Please understand this, brothers and sisters. It is not enough to memorize Bible verses. It is not enough for your kids to get every badge that Awana or every badge or everything that our youth program at JAM here gives to simply know the Bible. Our faith it's not simply a transactional one where if you just memorize a verse, it takes care of all things. Memorizing the scripture does nothing for you if you do not submit to it. It just becomes another religious text. It becomes just as useless as the Koran or any other book of whatever faith of the world if you do not submit yourself to the word of God. It is not enough to sing the books of the Bible in order. Right? I know this, like, there's a song out there that gets you to memorize the, the books uh, in a particular order of a particular tradition. And I can't sing it for you. I wouldn't. It would be a curse to you. It's not enough to recite a pledge to the Christian flag and to, and to, to commit yourself to Scripture. It's not enough to have a Bible reading plan and to read the Bible every year. If you read the Scriptures but don't humble yourself before them in obedience, you will never know the peace of God. And as you disciple your children, focus on their understanding of Scripture more so than the memorization of Scripture. It does your children no service to memorize verses and have no idea what this means. What does this mean about God? What does it mean about, since, since it means this about God, what does that mean about me and how I ought to live? If they're just memorizing verses, they're, they're, not, they're not walking in the faith. They're just, they're just no words. They need to know how to live in light of God's truth. And sure that they do. They can know all the Bible verses that whatever youth programs out there, but if they're not submitting, if they don't understand the theology behind it, if theology is not being taught, God's not being taught. Right? You need to know why I'm reading this. Why am I memorizing? Why do I memorize this verse? How does this matter to me? How does this matter for kids? How does this matter to your parents and how you live in light of them? So forth. You need to understand what you're reading. This is why we want to give you books. That's why I recommended like this one book. Uh, I forgot the title again. The Biggest Story Bible Storybook. It's a long title. It's great in that because it teaches you the purpose of God's word. It teaches children especially how to live in light of God's word. So if you read the scriptures but don't humble yourself before them, you will never know the peace of God as you're called to know the peace of God. Isaiah 66 verse 2 tells us to whom God will look. Tells us to whom God will bestow favor and blessing upon. And if I had a life verse, I suppose this would be it. The last part of it. Where God says, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. That's what Josiah did in our text. 
He trembled at the word of God, and God gave him peace. Do you tremble at the word of God? Or has the passage of time and the effect of familiarity softened the thunder of God's word? You're so used to it, especially for those of you who perhaps have grown up in the church and you've, you went to the youth programs and you've had those verses given to you over and over again, but there's no sacredness to them. There's no holiness to it. It's just another word. It's just another line out of God's book, which sits on most people's coffee tables or, or bookshelves and collects dust. There's no holiness to it. There's no sacredness to it. It's just more words out of an old, ancient book. Have you lost that sense of reverence for the word of God? Do you no longer tremble at the word of God? Do you tremble more at the opinions and the philosophies of the world and of society? Are you more concerned about being canceled than you are about what God thinks of you and about God potentially forsaking you? When you read and you hear Jesus say in Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, do you tremble at the standard that is being set? Do you understand that Jesus is saying that in order for you to be in the kingdom, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect? And do you understand you can't be perfect? Do you understand that you cannot get in the kingdom on your own? Do you tremble when you read Genesis 1-1 when he says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? Do you tremble at that? Or are you so familiar and comfortable with it, you just don't give it any thought? Do you understand that this God who created all things, I mean, have you considered creation? I'm not talking about just earth. I mean, earth has enough, but have you considered the stars, the cosmos, not as things that we worship, but things that we marvel at and point us to worship the creator, the one who created all those things? Have you considered the size of the universe, how massive it is, and yet how small the atoms the protons, the electrons, the neutrons are that make up all of this. That he created all things and that he has spoken to you on this speck of rock and this great, massive universe. Do you understand when you open the Bible, he, the creator, is speaking to you personally and to us as the bride of Christ. And that he has done so much for you. And he wants the best for you. And he's given you an opportunity to have eternal life for you. That's who's spoken to you. Do you tremble? And do you praise him? Ponder that. And that even right now, all things, this feeble pulpit is being sustained by the word of God. The air that comes in and out of your lungs, your heart beating, which is so fragile. Any one of us, your heart could stop. It doesn't matter how old or how young you are. I've been around long enough to know that you can be 20 and you have a heart attack. Just like that. Just, you just die. It just happens. Some, some people are more genetically prone. You just don't know when you're going to die. Freak things happen. You just don't know. But God, he knows. He's the creator of all things. He sustains all things. And he has spoken to you. Do you tremble when you realize that God himself has said that those who believe in him, he will dwell in, he will make his home in you. Thus, you understand 
that if God is dwelling in you, do you know what that makes you? A temple. A holy temple. You are a temple of worship to God. Do you then keep your life free of idols and altars of false worship? Or do you, like Manasseh and Amon, welcome them into the temple of God and use them for idol worship? Or are you like Josiah, trembling at the word of God, removing any signs, any forms of false worship? Do you tremble when Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many, not few, not a little, but many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. People who know Christ are obedient to his word from Genesis to Revelation. Do you, in faith, humble yourself before God? And is your life, the way you walk, is it marked by obedience according to the word of God. Perhaps right now is the first time you're trembling. Perhaps you have been so used to, you've had a callous and you haven't trembled before God and now you are trembling before God and you're wondering, what am I to do? To whom, where do I go? Well, you do as David did. You do as Josiah did. Go to the arms of the holy God. Just as we sang before this message, Our sins are many, but his mercy is more. And keep going to him over and over and over again. The life of a believer is a life of repentance, not just once, but many times. Whether you are new to trembling before God's word or a seasoned veteran, the response is the same. Go to Christ, go to Calvary, throw yourself upon the everlasting arms of Christ then stand up confidently, knowing that the work on the cross is finished, and walk where Jesus has walked in obedience. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for the opportunity for us to come before you this morning to hear your word, regardless of where we may be in in relation uh, to you. We thank you that your grace and your mercy is more, much more than all of our sins here combined. We thank you for your patience with us. We thank you that you allow us to hear your word for moments of, that, that you give us that we can repent, that we can confess our sin and turn to you. Father, I ask that your spirit would continue to do its work here this morning, that it would continue to teach, that it would continue to convict as necessary and accordingly to everyone's heart that is here. Help us to respond appropriately. We thank you for the example of Josiah. We thank you that you've given it to us. Father, we ask that you would help us to discern the idols in our lives, that you would make clear uh, the acts of idolatry that we may commit, and that you would help us to repent of them, that you would help us to walk um, in holiness, help us to tremble at your word, bring into our lives, if we lack it, Father, a new sense of reverence before you. 
Help us to know your holiness so that we can rightly understand our sin as much as we are able to on this side of eternity. Continue us down in the path of sanctification. Continue the work in us. Help us to be faithful as we submit ourselves to your teaching, to your leading. Help us to be uh, faithful uh, to you as we submit ourselves out of reverence uh, to you, to one another, as we seek to encourage one another, teach one another, admonish one another. As we do so, Father, help us be grounded in the word and may your word dwell richly within us so that we can glorify you in all that we do. Help us to be a faithful a light, a faithful witness to the people of West Salem and to the Cooley region. Help us to, as we go out from here, to be faithful proclaimers, testifiers of the work of Christ. Help us to do so boldly, confidently, knowing who sends us and knowing who is with us. Father, we ask that you'd bless the elements before us, the, the cup and the bread as we come to the table and partake of it. We ask that they would remind us of what your son has done for us. It remind us that the work on the cross is finished. We cannot add, we cannot take away from it, Father. We thank you for that. So help us confess our sins and help us to come to the table confidently, boldly, knowing that we are forgiven. Father, help us to live holy lives as we await the return of your son. Father, all these requests and the many that are unspoken and the many needs that are in the congregation today, we ask that you would hear us so that you would be glorified. We ask all these things by the power of the Spirit and the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.